faith. What is it? Being sure of our hope. Convinced of what we can't see. By faith, we understand the world was set in order at God's command. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and for his faith, God commended him as righteous. By faith, Noah trusted God and constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. By faith, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, believing God would still fulfill his promises. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. By faith, God's chosen nation crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and praised him as it swallowed up the Egyptians. By faith, Rahab the prostitute escaped destruction because she welcomed the spies in peace. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, David, and the prophets. By faith, they administered justice, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire. But others were imprisoned, murdered, and wandered in deserts, mountains, and openings in the earth. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So get rid of every weight, of every sin, and run. Run with endurance the race set before us. Your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the champion and guide of our faith. For promised joy, he endured the cross, thought nothing of its shame, and having risen again, has been handed his deserved glory at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, we're going to start with Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. We'll look at more of Hebrews 11 in this message this morning, but we're going to start with those two verses. Uh, before we get there, let me let you know that um, we're praying for Don and Beth Rosine uh, this morning. Uh, Beth's father died a few days ago, and uh, we're trying to support them during this time. If you know them, please look out for them, send a card, uh, encourage them during this time. Oh, you guys are here. I just saw Don right back there. Um, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. If you think of those two verses, we want to be commended for the same thing that the heroes of faith who are written about in Hebrews chapter 11 were commended for. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me pray for a minute. Father God, thank you for this opportunity on this beautiful day to gather together and to worship you, to call on your name, to acknowledge that our minds have been filled with all kinds of other stuff during the week, but we quiet down during this time in order to focus on you, to let you know that we are filled with gratitude for who you are and what you've done, and we want to learn more about you and we want to grow closer to you. So guide us in this time as we open the word so that you can speak to us through your word I pray that you would speak far beyond what I've prepared and 
uh, how I think this message will even come across because you are the author of life and you are the one who is alive in your word and, and by your spirit, you connect us to truths that you want us to hold on to and cling to. This week, we ask that you would walk with each of us. We open our hearts and our minds and we invite you into our schedules and into our week. We ask you to change what needs to be changed. We ask you to direct what needs to be directed. We ask you to to open up our lives to opportunities of who we might meet, who we might share the reasons for the hope that we have. We know that we are imperfect vessels, but as you forgive us for our sins and as you continue to uh, put us on the pathway that you want each of us to be on. Help us to be people who have an impact because of your grace that is alive in us. Thank you for meeting us in the midst of worship and in the midst of praise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, Sue and I attended a Global Leadership Summit pastors gathering where Ken Davis was invited to talk about the role of faith in presenting the good news of the gospel. Some of you may have heard of Ken uh, Davis. Ken was a, uh, a Christian comedian for a long time, but he has a tremendous background in, in speech and communication, and he actually doesn't go anywhere doing his humor unless he can teach alongside of that as well. On this particular evening, Ken told about a time when he was in college, and each student was expected to give a speech in this one class. When it was Ken's turn, he, he walked to a blackboard and he tied a piece of string to a piece of chalk to a string. And then as he tied the, the string to the chalk, he also put a tack on the other end of the string and he tacked it into the wall just above the chalkboard. And then he explained the law of the pendulum. He wanted that chalk on a string to act like a little pendulum. When he let it go, it would swing back and forth. And the law of the pendulum essentially states this, that a pendulum can never return to a point that is higher than its original release point. Because of the forces of friction and gravity, it will always return to a point that is just a little bit lower than the point that it was released from. He then added a child's toy to that piece of chalk in order to give it a little bit of weight. And when he released the pendulum it, it, and that chalk, it, it, it made a, a mark on the chalkboard where little by little they could see the arc of the pendulum as it slowed down and finally came to a point of rest. He explained that that point of rest is called the point of equilibrium where all the forces are equal. At that point, Ken asked the class how many of them believe in the law of the pendulum. And all of the students raised their hands. The teacher raised his hand as well. And at that point, the teacher began to walk through the room thinking that Ken's presentation was over. What he didn't realize was it had just begun. And then he pointed to a, uh, a, a table where he had set up a chair on the table and he asked the teacher if he would climb up on top of the table and sit on that chair that was up against the wall. And when the teacher got into that spot on the chair, Ken unveiled that he had come in the night before and he had tied a 500-pound parachute cord to a beam in the ceiling and then it had, had gone back to the wall right where the, professor was sta- or the teacher was standing and he had tied 250 pounds of metal weights to the end of that, uh, that cord and they were tied to a hook on the back wall. And then he brought that out, and he brought it right to about an inch in front of the teacher's nose. And he asked him, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? (laughs) And the teacher kind of squeaked out, yes, I think so. 
And with that, he let it go, and it went arcing across, all the way across the room, and then it came back, and when it got to the end of the other end of the room, it reached a stopping point where all the energy was gone, and then as it began to come back, it picked up speed, and it was moving, and all of a sudden, when it got closer to the teacher, he dove off of that chair and off of the table. Ken said he'd never seen a human being move faster than that. And at that point, he asked the classroom, does our teacher believe in the law of the pendulum? And the entire classroom roared back, no, <laughs> he doesn't. Well, there's a reason I tell you that story. We often complicate it, but faith is not a complicated concept. But it is often challenging to see it through to the point where it is tested. That's where the teacher gave up that day. When the test got too close, he bailed. So here's the question that I have this morning. What is faith, and how does a person become known for faith? I would suggest to you there is not one answer to that question, but th there are several answers, because faith is something that starts at a point and deepens, but faith is tested at many different levels. So good morning, my North River friends. I'm really glad that you're here as we are gathering together for worship today. I'm glad that all of you are online, who are with us, wherever you may choose to watch from today. We're going to talk about something that is essential to the heart of Christian living. We're going to talk about faith. This is the final part of the series that we've been in during this month. Uh, the series is called, They Will Know Us By Our... And I mentioned last week that we sat together as a staff as I, I threw out that question, what will they know us by? And, and we began to talk about some of the dominant themes that we are to be known by as Christians. The easy one was love because we have songs that reinforce that idea. But we talked about how we'll be known by our story and the way that we talk about the grace of God in our lives. We, we talked about how we'll be known by our love. Last week we talked about how we'll be known by the way that we care for one, each, one another. That we are expected by God to continue to bear each other's burdens and to care in, in very dramatic ways and sometimes in costly ways. And this morning we're going to talk about the final piece of this, that we will be known by our faith. So that's our topic for today. Here's the first observation when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the greatest faith chapter in the Bible. Faith is trusting in the character of God. I said a moment ago that at some level faith is simple because at this level it is. Faith is making an assessment on who God is and we trust him based on what we know about God and how God has met us in life. So the first two verses of this chapter read this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, this is what the ancients were commended for. Defining faith is an important task for a number of reasons. People are just getting started in following Jesus, and they, they need to understand faith in its role. Those who are kicking the tires and evaluating Christianity, but have not yet bought in on it, naturally have questions about what faith is, what faith is not, and how we acquire faith. I've met some who are very skeptical about Christian faith and who are convinced that we've all bought into something where faith is a blind leap into the dark in ways that are foolish, dangerous, and without foundation. So it is helpful that the New Testament letter to the Hebrews offers some defining marks about what faith is. Here in these opening verses, we find three of those marks. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Faith is being certain of what we do not see. Faith is something that the ancient followers of God were commended for. 
Now, it doesn't mean that they, they believed in something that was a mirage. They believed in promises that were based on the character of a God who keeps His Word and comes through. Then the rest of this chapter reminds us of people who trusted in the promises of God even though God's fulfillment of these promises was often far off in the future. Several people are mentioned in a list who live by this kind of faith. We sometimes refer to this as the hall of fame of, of faith in the Bible. It starts with Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses himself, and Ruth. And then there are groups of people who acted by faith the Israelites who followed Moses into the Red Sea as, as the walls of the sea were parted, the next generation of Israelites who marched around Jericho and saw the walls fall in, a group of people who are simply mentioned without telling all of their stories, four of the judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and leaders from the era of, of uh, just after the judges, Samuel, David, and the prophets. They're, they're there because they had something in common. They trusted God with promises that were often far off in the future, which meant that there was a cost to trusting God and to believing those promises and to moving through life in faith, even though that they knew that God's response was far off in the future or maybe even beyond the end of their lives. They trusted in the character of a God who speaks, who keeps His promises. Faith takes God at His word and then moves ahead in that confidence. All of the people who are mentioned in Hebrews 11 are people who trusted in the character of God and then whose faith grew deeper because of that process. So observation number one is that faith is trusting in the character of God. Here's the second observation I would make about this chapter. Faith is for ordinary people who want to please God. If I were to jump ahead a few verses, starting with verse 4, we read this. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you are going to start coming up with a list of heroes or a hall of fame of faith, who would you start with? I find it amazing that the author of Hebrews starts with Abel and Enoch. One writer noticed that they together only take up 10 verses in the book of Genesis. People like Moses and Abraham, they occupied multiple chapters in the, in, in the books where, where they are focused upon in Genesis and Exodus and more. Why would God start with these two people who seem rather insignificant in terms of the volume of what Scripture talks about? Most likely the reason is that they are rather ordinary people. Abraham and Moses were filled with faith that changed the course of history. But Abel and Enoch were ordinary men, not known for great and heroic acts. There was nothing big or extravagant about Abel's sacrifice. He did one thing. He gave the best of his flock. Enoch sought time with God and pursued God. Let's take a moment and just look at these, two, these first two characters who show up here in 
Hebrews 11. Abel and his brother Cain are first introduced to us in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 3 is a well-known chapter. It's where Adam and Eve have their fall. They eat the forbidden fruit. The last scene in chapter 3 is where God takes skins from an animal and makes clothing for them because they were covered with shame at that point. We're not told what kind of animal that was, but if the animal provided enough skins for clothing for both of them, I don't think this was something small like a rabbit. This might have been the first time that Bambi you know, surrendered her, her skin for leather or some other large animal for that purpose. And then we come to chapter 4, the very next chapter, and Cain and Abel are expected to bring offerings to the Lord, and Cain's offering of vegetables and things that he grew in his garden were not acceptable because it seems to appear that he knew what God expected and didn't deliver. Well, Abel brings a sheep from his flock and sacrifices that flock, and it costs him something more, and God was pleased with that sacrifice. Abel's gift was generous and sacrificial and was in accordance with God's wishes. It teaches us something about giving and making offerings to God. Whenever, whatever you choose to offer, give to God and, and give what you know pleases God. And usually that means it's something that will cost us something, not something that's just easy to give. This will be different for each person, but let's be clear. When we do this for the right reasons in ways that costs us, God is honored and God is pleased. And we find that in the Old Testament. We find that in the New Testament. Enoch's faith was focused on pleasing God. Genesis tells us that he walked faithfully with God. And this tells us that we can invite God into each day that we live in such a way that we actually walk in the presence of God and that God walks with us. One day, Enoch and the Lord were walking through the day and God simply took him away. He walked so closely with God that one day God must have said something like, Enoch, let's keep going to my place. And they did. And he was no more. And he was never found. Do you want to please God? You don't have to disappear like Enoch, but what if you started off tomorrow morning and every morning over the next week simply saying, Lord, I want to do this day with you. I invite you into every part of my day, every conversation I have, every relationship that I have, I ask that you would season my words with grace and salt and I ask that you would transform the way that I look at this day because you are with me. Help me in every problem and challenge I face. Help me in every joy that I celebrate. So here we've seen so far that faith is trusting in the character of God and that faith is for ordinary people who want to please God and I think that probably accounts for most of us in this room. Here's the central idea that I'm trying to get across today. Faith enables ordinary people to please God and equips us for bigger roles through times of testing. The third observation from chapter 11 is that faith gets stronger through testing. If we were to jump ahead a few verses to verse 13, it reads this way. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. I love the way that verse starts. All these people were still living by faith when they died. When I was reading that earlier this week, I thought to myself, God, this is what you want from me. You want me to live by faith 
as long as I have breath in my lungs, as long as I have days that are moving forward, to live every day by faith when they died. So the third person who is mentioned in this list of faith heroes was Noah. Noah was commanded to build an ark, a large boat to rescue him and others from a flood that was coming. From the time of Adam and Eve, people had rebelled against God and and Genesis tells us that the world had become filled with evil. Remember, this is God's world. It's his creation, and we are too. And when the world seemed so filled with evil, the Lord sent a great flood that wiped out most of the people on the earth at that time. But Noah and his family stood alone, obeying God in faith, and God provided a way out because they were bent on pleasing God and honoring God with their lives. Didn't mean they were perfect. They weren't. You read the rest of the history of Noah. Noah was by far uh, not a perfect man but his heart was still continually reoriented toward God. Going against the grain of the culture tested Noah's resolve to follow faithfully. Abraham believed in a promise that God made to turn Abraham's uh, childless estate into a great nation. He was 75 years old when the Lord appeared to him, told him to leave his home and to move to a different land that he would one day give to Abraham's descendants. In other words, Abraham would never live long enough to see this realized. He was also 75 when God promised to make him the father of a nation. How does that happen? When you're 75, your wife is about the same age, you've never had children. But he believed God, and God counted that as righteousness in his life. God promised Abraham that one day this land would belong to his descendants, and his descendants would be so many they'd be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Yet Abraham lived the rest of his life in tents, moving around and constantly looking forward to the day when the Lord would fulfill that promise. I dare say if you live long enough and you go through enough experiences in life, there are things that the Lord will ask you to pray about and hold on to and to hope for that you may not see by the time that you die. But if God has promised, God will come through. And sometimes he wants to use our faithfulness in the same way that he used the faithfulness of Abraham and Sarah. That we will continue praying and that we will continue working toward changes that are yet to come or realities that are are planned by the Lord for times after our life. And the question is, will we hold on and we'll keep hoping and we'll keep working toward those days? I know far too many people who have a child who's walked away from early childhood faith and parents who are praying for that child uh, in, in the hope that one day, all of a sudden, all those verses that were memorized, all of those lessons that were talked about, all of those songs that were sung will click into place and that child will choose to turn back toward the Lord and invite the Lord into their life and, and just watch that pattern grow. And those parents keep praying faithfully, patiently, not forcing it down anybody's throats, but waiting for the time when that child will begin to say, I watched mom and dad all their lives. I watched them believe when other people ridiculed them for it. I watched them even though there were hardships that came and they had a peace about them and they had a sense of direction because the Lord was there. I need that, I choose that, and I'm coming back to that. There are an awful lot of people in this room who live for that day and who are hanging on patiently. And we are being tested as the weeks go by, as the months go by, as the years go by, believing that God will honor our prayers and believing that God will honor the work done when those children were little 
and the truths that have been modeled before them. Don't give up if I'm speaking to you. Don't ever give up. Because the Lord works in mysterious ways and there are all kinds of stories of people who have come back to appreciate the lessons that they learned early on and in a point of need or in a point of brokenness or a point of realizing that all the thrills that once seemed so great really don't last. That they look for something that can satisfy through the ups and downs of life and God fills that void. Your faith gets stronger through the testing And I believe that's one of the reasons why God doesn't instantaneously answer all the things that we pray for because he knows that he is committed to the process that's going on inside of us during those years of waiting. And here's the fourth observation for today. Faith carries us through times of injustice. I marvel over some of the people who made it into this hall of fame, heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. One of them is Joseph. And there are several chapters in the book of Genesis that are committed to the life of Joseph and telling his story. But one verse sums this up here in Hebrews eleven twenty two: By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. If anyone was known for faith in the Old Testament, it was Joseph Joseph is one of the dominant characters of the book of Genesis. You can read about him from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, the final chapter of Genesis. God gave Joseph dreams as a young man of personal greatness, and he shared those dreams with his older brothers. They hated him for it, and they sold him as a slave to some traders who were on their way to Egypt. He started there as a household servant. Eventually, he was unfairly and unjustly sent to prison. But at each step of his journey, we discover that Joseph learned that God was with him. God hadn't abandoned him, even in the hardships and the injustices, but God was with him all along the way. And year after year, Joseph was wondering when would his moment come when God would lift him out of this misery and and free him. God was with him and gave him success in the years that he spent as a servant, and he blessed that entire household. God was with him and gave him success in the years that he was in the prison. And it says that God even blessed the work in the prison and blessed the prison because of him, if you can imagine that. In each situation and through each injustice that fell upon him, God blessed Joseph where he was. God's presence kindled Joseph's faith and it took it to deeper and deeper levels, much greater than that teenage kind of faith that he had at 17 when God gave him these great visions of grandeur. And he lived by faith despite the unfairness and the injustice in his life. That faith led Joseph to believe that God still had great plans for his future. So here he was sold as a slave at 17. He was 30 years old when he finally began to appear before the king's court. The king had a dream and Joseph was able to interpret the dream And when he interpreted the dream, he not only did that, but he unfolded a plan for the future. The dream told about how there was going to be an unprecedented seven-year period of bounty in all the harvests in Egypt, followed by seven years of unprecedented famine. And so Joseph put forward a, a bold plan. He said, oh, king, if you can hear me, this is what I think we should do during those years of plenty. And then we'll be prepared during those years of famine. And we alone of all the nations around us will have food to sell during that time. 
The king looked at him and said, I know the right person to be in, part of the, to be in charge of this food administration plan for the entire neighbor, nation. And he put Joseph in charge of that project. Joseph was 39 years old and the second highest, power, second highest and most powerful ruler in the land of Egypt. By the time he was united with his brothers, the same guys who sold him into slavery when he was 17. For 22 years, he had endured separation from his family, but in every stage, God had blessed him. And his faith had been stretched and tested and deepened during all of those years. He didn't abandon it when he was alone and living in a different culture. And all of this prepared him for a life-changing role in national leadership as Egypt's famine preparations are. And by that time, he'd become a man of tremendous faith, administrative discipline, and he believed that the Lord his God had placed him in a unique role for this purpose. So much so that those words leak out of the restorative sentence that he says to his brothers, you intended this to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Saving of many lives because they had food to feed not only the nation of Egypt, but other nations that came to buy food during that time of famine, but also it was saving his own family's lives as Joseph's brothers and all of their families moved down to Egypt to ride out the storm. Perhaps you find yourself in a season of unfairness or even worse, some kind of injustice that has happened to you during your life or you're being tested greatly where you are at work or within your family situation or within the neighborhood you live in. I want to say to you, based on this chapter, don't lose heart. Press on in faith. The very God who has granted us his grace and his salvation is able to come through for you through the challenges you face, God is doing something with you. He is stretching you in a way that you never thought possible. He is testing you, not to let you fail. He's testing you to show you how great the faith that he's creating in you can be. He is deepening your faith. We no longer have a faith that only rises through the easy times when everything works out well, when everything is great, but he is building within you a faith that can ride out the deepest storms because there are people around you who need a rock that they can reach out to and see and that will be you in the midst of that storm knowing that you are clinging to the ultimate rock that never moves and that is Jesus. The circumstances thrust upon you may be immediately driven by somebody else's cruelty or somebody else's acts of injustice. But if you keep giving it to God, he will use that hurtful time to produce uncommon strength and uncommon faith that prepares you for some role that you have not yet imagined. I don't care how old you are and how long you've been walking in faith or how discouraged you have become. If you give what you have to the Lord, he has something even greater yet in your future. Well, he will use you in a situation you never before would have thought that you had been instrumental in. Because that's what our God does with people. He started with Abraham when he was 75. And he was 100 when that child of promise finally arrived. That's the character of our God. John Piper writes about faith when it is tested this way. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
He adds to that nugget of Scripture in James chapter 1. Strange as it may seem, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. Doesn't that sound amazing? Let me read that sentence again. Strange as it may seem, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. Faith is like muscle tissue. If you stress it to the limit, it gets stronger, not weaker. He says that's what James means here. When your faith is threatened and tested and stretched to the breaking point, the result is greater capacity to endure. And the Bible calls this steadfastness. Ever wonder what steadfastness meant? And you read that and we skip by it real fast. That's what God is trying to produce in us. Faith muscles that have been stretched and tested and strengthened so that you are prepared for life's greatest storms. And not only that you are prepared for yourself, but that you become the one who shows how to anchor ourselves to the rock that never moves for your family members and for your friends and for your neighbors and your coworkers when they are looking for someone who knows how to stand strong in the storms of life. Faith is not a small matter. Faith is not a simple matter. But faith enables ordinary people like you and me to please God and equips us for bigger roles through times of testing. Let's pray. Lord God, we do not throw up our hands in celebration over the difficult aspects of the testing that comes our way. But knowing that you use the tests of life to strengthen us, we nevertheless thank you for every form of testing that we're going through right now. We thank you for every trial that we've gone through in life that has led us to this point. And we thank you for your faithfulness through it all. Thank you for using ordinary people. Thank you for using great people. Thank you for showing us through them that when life seems to all of a sudden throw up great difficulties, you have not abandoned us. You are allowing us to go through these times so that we might grow stronger, so that we might prove trustworthy to be used by you for something that is greater still in the future. And so, Lord, I ask that you would hear the soft whispers of this congregation today as we hand over to you whatever trial, whatever period of testing that we feel that we're going through. And as we say to you, Lord, I understand in a new way that you have not left me. You have been with me in the good times, but you are also with me in the times of testing. And so I invite you to use these times to make my faith stronger, to make my faith something that brings you pleasure and joy and to use me more greatly with whatever it is that you have for us in the future. And Lord, we thank you for being this kind of God, this kind of God who we can absolutely trust, this kind of God who will take us deeper, this kind of God who isn't just the God of the good moments, but who is the God who produces steadfastness in that spirit we humbly say Lord bring it on in Jesus name Amen